It's a great pleasure to talk this week on the latest Master Investor podcast to James Harris, who's the manager of the STS Global Income and Growth Trust, managed by Troy Asset Management. Now, this uh, trust has just changed its name. Uh, it used to be known as Securities Trust of Scotland, and it's changed its name, as I say, to the STS Global Income and Growth Trust. has a market cap, I think, of around $200 million and has been under the management of Troy since mid-November 2020. So coming up to its third anniversary uh, later this year. I have to start, James, before we get into what you do and uh, what you think about where we are. Tell me about this name change. Always interesting when funds or trusts change their name. I guess you're saying the Securities Trust of Scotland is, dare I say it, a little bit parochial and perhaps not uh, giving a full picture of what you're doing? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Secondly, no, no, it's not a question of being parochial. Securities Trust of Scotland is a venerable name and, and in some respect, we're rather sad to see it go. However, we do think that it's important that a trust is named, you know, it tells you what it actually does. And if you put global income into some search engines, then Securities Trust of Scotland won't come up. Whereas if you put in STS, Global Income and Growth Trust or Global Income, then we will. So we think it makes it easier for people to find it. We think it makes it uh, more descriptive what we're actually doing. And so We've left STS to be respectful to the past, if you like, but we want it to be more descriptive of what the trust is actually doing. Well, it's a very interesting place to be. Obviously, the investment trust global equity income sector is quite small, actually, as compared to many others. So you're fishing in a, in a relatively concentrated pool as far as competitors are concerned. But there are some very good trusts and distinguished trusts in there have been going many, many years, such as uh, Murray International and Scottish American. So what's so different about what you're doing? How do you actually try and differentiate yourself, first of all, from the other uh, investment trusts in the sector? And then maybe from... Uh, other global equity income funds generally. I mean, you manage an open-ended fund as well and with a similar sort of strategy. You're right. It is a relatively limited pool, which to some degree I think is somewhat surprising in the sense that I think that having a balance between income and growth at this point generally, but also particularly today, given where we are in markets, and we'll no doubt talk about that a bit more, is an entirely sensible place for investors to be allocating capital. Now, you'll know that I've been managing money on a global income basis for a long time. I launched a fund at Newton, as it was then. I'm not sure what it's called now, back in 2005, and have been managing money on that basis since. Uh, And you're right, we also have an open-ended structure, plus an offshore structure, plus uh, one or two segregated mandates. But we were absolutely delighted to win this closed-ended mandate, this investment trust, and we're very pleased that the board entrusted the capital to us. Because, well, I'm pretty passionate, I have to say, about providing what I think investors require. Now, Troy's core client base, in our view, is really those investors who have irreplaceable capital and in this case are in need of income. Uh, And those two things often coincide in retirement. And so what we want to be producing and the way we differentiate ourselves is by explicitly trying to produce above average returns, but with below average volatility. And we think both of those things matter. So the return speaks for itself, obviously. But we think volatility matters because when you're young, volatility is your friend. If you have a big drawdown, you've got lots of time to things come right. You can buy assets cheaply. Everything's fine. But when you're not so young, a big drawdown is something you really want to avoid. Academics call it sequencing risk. But effectively, by avoiding big drawdowns, you don't get scared out of your position. You can compound capital in a more predictable way and so on. And that's what we're trying to do here. So it ties very much into what we're trying to do more broadly at Troy, which, as you know, is all about capital preservation, looking to the downside, being conservative. 
but it's also providing a solution to investors who are thinking, how do I fund my day-to-day retirement? How do I protect myself from inflation without taking too much risk? And we think that this strategy is a very appropriate way to address that question. And we think this structure is also a very appropriate way for that question to be answered. Well, let's dive into that in a bit more detail then. It's fair to say, I think, that at the moment, the kind of uh, income that you're providing through the trust is uh, not as high as some of your competitors. You can give us the latest figure when you answer this question. But I guess your emphasis is on growing that dividend, uh, and you're hoping perhaps that the yield will increase. Or is it more a case of you saying that you're following a total return approach, and therefore you don't want to give up too much capital growth just to get the income? How do you trade those off? That's a very good question, and it's slightly without not answering the question, slightly all of the above. Our yield is about 3% today. So we think that that is an attractive yield relative to history, relative to fixed income. We can come on to that. You know, I've been asked by a couple of people, well, now I can get 5% on a short-dated bond. Why do I need an income fund? And my view has always been, well, they're complementary. It's not one or the other, it's both. You get certain income from, from bonds and you get growing income from equities. I think that's the case. But we are mindful of the fact that if you have too high a distribution, you are led into sectors that potentially you shouldn't be. Uh, And we think that that's the case today, even more than perhaps is the case five, 10 or 15 years ago when I began investing on this basis. And what I mean by that is that traditionally you may have invested in areas like telecommunications, utilities, autos and so on. But our view is that there are many sectors, including those I've just mentioned, where it's very hard to know what the cash flows are going to look like on a five, seven, 10 year view. Now, at Troy, we have really low turnover, somewhere around 7 to 9% across our funds, which implies a 10-plus year holding period. So we're proper long-term investors. If it's difficult for us to say what the cash flows in those industries are going to be like on that sort of timescale because of the disruption they face, then we don't think that you should be in investing there. So we are consciously seeking to have a quality-adjusted, if you like, volatility-adjusted income yield. And where we get to is that we think 3% is about the right level. And overall, we're generating a close to 6% free cash flow yield on the trust, which funds about a 3% dividend yield. And we think that that will grow at about 5%. It has done historically. We don't see any reason why it shouldn't do in the future. I mean, indeed, in our open-ended structure, we weren't running this then, but we didn't cut our dividend in 2020, which I think puts us in a minority and underscores the resiliency of the cash flows of the underlying portfolio. But if you take, a say, a 6% free cash flow yield growing at 5%, then you should expect roughly, not every year, not in a straight line, not guaranteed, a return of sort of 9, 10, 11% from a strategy such as this, broken down 3% income and 6 or 7% by capital. So we're giving people enough money to fund their day-to-day expenses without overstretching, leading into areas you shouldn't invest. But we're also hopefully doubling people's capital every 10 to 12 years via the rule of 72. Now, if we can deliver that sort of return over the next few years, particularly considering the challenges that we face in the economies around the world at the moment, then I think that'll be a fine result. And that's ultimately what we're trying to provide with the STS Global Income and Growth Trust. So the message really is, there's two things you need to look at if you're looking at global equity income, and you need to look at the yield, obviously, but you need to look at the ability to service that yield. And some of your competitors offer higher yields, but they may not necessarily offer a higher overall return, and they certainly may have greater volatility. That's really your story, right? Indeed. And investors should obviously choose what they think is most appropriate. But there's a slightly further point. This is not just relative to my peers, but it's relative to other trust that people could invest in. And in my experience, the popularity of income investing or total return investing in income and balance between income and capital tends to wax and wane depending on what recent returns have been. And the stronger recent returns have been, 
the less focused people are on income. And of course, it should be the other way around. Because if you've had a long period of very strong returns from markets, the likelihood is, and this is the case today, that valuations will be pretty elevated. And if valuations are elevated, then expected returns are pretty low. One leads to the other. And so we think that uh, investors have benefited from a great period in markets over the last 10 or 15 years, of course, augmented by quantitative easing and low interest rates and all the rest of it. But it may not be so stupid to lock in a decent and growing income yield from some of those gains that you've had on in, on your capital, and therefore switching perhaps from some growth to a little bit more of a balance between income and growth may not be such a stupid thing to say. Now, you know, I would say that, but actually today, I think that looks like a particularly sensible thing for a particular cohort of investors, as I mentioned. Well, those points are all well taken. In terms of the portfolio, the Troy Stars have a relatively concentrated portfolio, uh, not that many stocks, sometimes around between 30 and uh, 40, perhaps in your case. And you also tend to focus on a relatively small number of sectors within the market, which have those uh, durable qualities that you like. So how does that work out when trying to minimize volatility and drawdowns in the sense that obviously the, the more concentrated you are and the more narrow your focus In conventional analysis, that would imply more risk. How do you deal with that uh, particular issue? Well, again, it depends how you define risk. If you're defining risk as tracking error or as volatility, but particularly tracking error, then having a concentrated portfolio can mean that you deliver returns that are markedly different from the market. We would think much more in terms of permanent loss of capital and the smoothness of the return that we generate. And you're quite right. At Troy, we tend to concentrate on specific sectors and businesses that we think have sustainable competitive advantages, have a high degree of predictability in terms of the long-term growth and cash flows of those businesses and ultimately, therefore, dividend yields. So we tend to concentrate on consumer staples. We think they're excellent businesses. I think they've demonstrated that again in the last 12, 18 months where in an inflationary time, they have been able to raise prices. We like healthcare. We like uh, information technology. Conversely, as I mentioned, we largely avoid large swathes of the market that we think have low volatile returns on capital, that are very capitally intensive and that high degree of cyclicality. And by avoiding those more cyclical, more capitally intensive businesses, we tend to produce a portfolio that has less risk in our view. And we can describe that as having lower volatility or a higher um, predictability of cash flows. So it's a 32 stock portfolio. You're quite right. It is relatively concentrated. It's also concentrated by sector and by business model. And therefore, we are not so concerned with benchmarks. We're not so concerned with tracking errors and positioning relative to uh, the broader market, we are very focused on the sorts of businesses that we own and then allowing a high quality portfolio once it's settled to compound over time and interrupt that compounding reluctantly. And in that way, we think that although our investors have to expect some periods where we do diverge from the broader market quite markedly on some occasions, that actually over time, the risk adjusted return we generate will be attractive. So you've been going since uh, December 2020, and that's obviously been quite an interesting time to be investing through. We've had uh, this inflation problem. We've had rising interest rates. We've had the war in Ukraine. We've had commodity prices, a lot of things going on. How has your strategy worked through that process? I think you can give us a number for the actual return since you took over. But uh, I imagine it's been, uh, as you say, slow and steady uh, is now beginning to be appreciated after a period when uh, a number of other trusts would have posted some very big numbers on the upside and then some very big numbers on the downside. Well, you're dead right. So, I mean, the numbers are that the NAV since we took over the trust is up about 14%, exactly, in fact, whereas the the group against which we measure ourselves is up 18.4. So we are a little bit behind, but I think the return is 
respectable. Uh, and it's certainly within the bounds of what one might expect. I have to say more recently, we have struggled a bit. You'll know that we've had this big bounce from kind of the October low. I know this is all very short term, but in 2022. So 2022 as a whole was good. We protected capital, as you would expect, from Troy. We had a particularly good first part of the year, but we have struggled a bit in this recent quite material bounce. So overall, we think that the performance is respectable, not fantastic. But what we do also observe is that we are, as you say, in a very interesting time right now. And broadly, we view the outlook as quite challenging in the sense that it is likely, we think, that the world, and including the UK, may well be going into a slowdown, possibly a recession. We've seen a very large move in interest rates, which perhaps people have forgotten. You know, monetary policy works with long and variable lags, and we're in that lag today. But at the same time, the bond market via being inverted, you know, the short rates are much higher than long rates, is implying that perhaps a steep slowdown is coming. And yet, if you look at very long-term measures of markets, such as a CAPE or a market cap to GDP, we're towards the upper end of the historic range. And we're also witnessing a kind of mini boom in AI. You know, I observe that NVIDIA is on north of 40 times sales now. So to have all that going on at the same time is pretty interesting. But it strikes me, I know Troy is generally a pretty conservative, pretty cautious investor, but we're towards the cautious end of cautious. Uh, And what we try to do is produce attractive risk-adjusted returns over a full market cycle. Now, if we are moving into the second half or second third, or perhaps you might say the more challenging part of a market cycle, then that ought to be a time when Troy delivers, when our returns are relatively good. And so the fact that we slightly lagged our peers over that time, the fact that we slightly lagged the market more recently, doesn't unduly concern us. Obviously, it takes a bit of forbearance from our investors, and it provides a bit of psychological challenge to me as an investor. But we think that the way we're positioned today is appropriate for the outlook that we foresee. However, what I would say is that there are three areas we would like to have more capital allocated to. We don't talk about overweights and underweights because we don't talk about benchmarks. But we think underweight industrials. We have some very high-quality industrials that we like very much. We think that the onshoring, reshoring capital expenditure boom that's coming to the developed world as a result of having to rebuild supply chains could be really interesting and, and, and be to the benefit of these businesses. The second is the consumer. It's no surprise, it's no secret that the consumer is under a great deal of pressure. The cost of living crisis is real. And with mortgage rates doing what they are, it's it's a very challenging time. But without sounding like a heartless investor, that may well mean that sentiment towards consumer-related companies become somewhat less optimistic. And that might give us an opportunity to buy some companies in that area. And the final one is non-bank financials. We observe some wonderful businesses that are geared into the capital markets, but which are dependent upon the level of capital markets. And therefore, given that I've already said, we think capital markets more broadly in equities specifically are fairly fully valued, we'd like to wait to buy them more cheaply. So there are areas we'd like to move into, but we are towards, as I say, the cautious end of cautious today. So obviously, if you're going to meet your sort of 7, 8, 9, 10% target, you've got a little bit of work to do from where you've done so far. And the market is challenging, as you say. And of course, as you mentioned, the competition from gilts, you know, you get a yield of 5% over two years. That's obviously not directly comparable with a long-term 10-year equity bond, uh, but it's still quite tempting in the short term. Though also, we've got inflation running incredibly high at 8%. Uh, and not all people who are approaching retirement will have index-linked pensions or retirement income. Indeed. What do you think about that? I mean, how do you think the inflation situation is going to develop? And uh, what impact will that have, do you hope, on the things that you own at the moment? Well, first of all, far be it for me to give people investment advice, but they should have a long-term appropriate asset allocation depending upon their circumstances and their risk appetite. And it should be made up 
of both fixed income and real assets like like equities. And, and actually to be able to invest in bonds again with a decent yield is a great thing, particularly for retirees and older folk in need of income. Of course, it's it's painful for mortgage owners, but the flip side of that is it's a great benefit to investors. But alongside that, they should have allocation to income-bearing equities, which can protect against inflation. Not because I necessarily think inflation is going to be high for a very long time. I don't really know. To be honest, I'm not sure anyone really knows. But the crucial point is this. We're not managing the portfolio based upon the inflation forecast, but we do think it's a sensible place to be allocating capital given the backdrop that we face. And I'll explain. We face two scenarios. The first is that inflation dissipates from here. I know the UK seems to have a unique ability to generate inflation, but it looks awfully like globally inflation is peaking. And if we do go into a recession, which looks jolly likely, if COVID distortions dissipate, then it may well be that inflation comes down quite quickly. It went up very quickly. It could well come down very quickly. Well, in that scenario, I think that uh, we're relatively well positioned because many of our businesses and consumer staples is a good example. Everyone questioned whether a company like a consumer staple has pricing power. Well, the reason they weren't demonstrating it is because there was no inflation. But now there has been inflation. They have been able to put up prices without diminishing the demand for their products. And we've seen companies like Hershey and Pepsi and over a longer period of time, Reckett, Menkeiser and Unilever begin to raise prices for demand not to diminish too much. And that's the hallmark of a great business. But if inflation begins to come down and they've taken price, and therefore input costs begin to ameliorate, today's margin squeeze is tomorrow's margin expansion. And I think we're pretty well positioned on that basis. Now, the second scenario is that inflation remains more persistent or sticky, seems to be the word that people use. And, you know, there's lots of good arguments why that might be the case. If that is the case, I think we're also relatively well positioned. And here's why. Because the same competitive advantages that allow you to have high and sustainable returns on capital employed also allow you to raise price over time. And so having a high quality portfolio, particularly one that's capital light, so whereby if you put up prices, you don't also have to increase commensurately the amount of capital you put into the business, you're relatively well positioned. There's a very famous paper written in 1977, written by Warren Buffett called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. And of course, he built his track record and in much more inflationary time in the early days. And yet he was still investing in the sorts of business that we are investing in because they provide you with protection against inflation over time. So I'm not predicting what inflation is going to do. I think it's very hard to say from here, but I think we're relatively well positioned either way. It's interesting you mentioned that paper. You did a very interesting little uh, note about that, uh, which is on your website. and I recommend that, referring back to Warren Buffett's analysis back in the 70s and early 80s. I guess the issue there is... We've heard a lot of people talking about uh, greedflation. Some people have been talking about greedflation. In other words, this very idea that companies put their prices up and when the inflation does come down, they're going to keep them up and they're going to be more profitable as a result of that. But that could in turn trigger some kind of political reaction, could it not? Do you think that's a risk at all in any of the markets where you're operating? Well, I think political intervention and political action is going to be a feature of the next few years. I think it's just where we are in the political cycle. It's where we are in the Overton window, and as people say, and, and so on. I think one of the points we try to make or one of the things we try and do is to be invested in businesses that are not especially, every business is subject to some government oversight and regulation and, and intervention in some form. But there are those that are much closer to government than others. And we've seen windfall taxes on energy. You see real intervention in the pricing of utility bills. 
you see a lot of regulation in lots of different areas. And of course, we're even beginning to see whether or not people should be held to their mortgages, which from a social perspective, of course, given how quickly rates has gone up, is something you can totally see why the argument could be made. But it is a market intervention either way. There's no two ways about it, particularly considering the fact that you're trying to raise interest rates to stay off inflation. And if you don't let the interest rates do their job, then potentially you're not allowing the inflation to come down, harsh though that may sound. But if you are, for instance, Hershey, I don't think that the US government's that fussed by what the price of chocolate is. Um, and when you go into a supermarket and think, I fancy a bar of chocolate, you also are not that fussed how much the bar of chocolate costs. And that's why they have pricing power. Uh, that's why they have brand loyalty. And that's why they are excellent businesses. So I think there is, of course, some truth in what you say. And if companies are found to be gouging their customers or to be raising prices that it's unreasonable, although I have to say the market tends to deal with that. If it's a market economy and you raise your prices in a way that's unreasonable, then demand begins to come down. But if you are a business that has sustainable competitive advantages, and particularly brands and distribution and all these wonderful things that make for high returns on capital, then some price to offset inflation is something that I think you can reasonably put through without unduly damaging your business. Yeah, just to mention it because, you know, heaven forbid we go back to something like the 1970s or early 80s, but it was the time when we also not unconnectedly saw uh, price controls, we saw wage controls, we saw uh, capital controls, how much money you could take out. We had all sorts of regulation in, in all sorts of ways and control of interest rates as well. So in the very worst case, you go back to a world which is not particularly favorable for capitalism in its rawest form. Uh, but strong companies always come through that, as, as you say, and that must be one of the things you rely on. Just on that, sorry to interrupt, but you are right, of course. I mean, anything can happen and governments are capable of anything. We are in a very unusual juncture and therefore we shouldn't write off. Um, I'm sure you've read Russell Napier's pieces about financial repression and the ability for governments to interfere in capitalism in many, many different ways. And the more challenging it gets for people, the more likely perhaps they are to intervene. So, yes, I'm not at all suggesting that governments won't do more. And we could see things that we haven't seen for decades. But as you say, I think a Troy approach, you know, the more complicated the world gets, arguably the more simple you should try and make your own investments. And easy as it sounds to invest in good, durable, resilient, predictable businesses, to have very low turnover, allow them to compound over time, to generally avoid those you think are too cyclical, too capital intensive. It sounds very simple, but actually the number of funds or number of trusts that are managed on that basis is actually very small. And I guess the other issue is, in your case, where you're fishing in quite a narrow pool, inevitably, is the valuations can get pretty high. Even a good company with a very solid return on equity and so on uh, can trade on a very high PE. So what do the metrics look like in, in terms of the companies that you own? And how does that compare to either the market or what other measures you look to value things by? I mean, you're right. And, and of course, if you are a genuinely long-term investor, whereby you hold companies for 10 plus years, you do have to be prepared for them on occasion to trade at reasonably high valuations. Otherwise, if you were continuously buying and selling based upon narrow valuation ranges, then that you wouldn't be a long-term investor. The way we think about it is it's not good enough just simply to buy right, as in buy good businesses. You've also got to buy well. So you should try and buy at reasonable valuations as well. And therefore, what we end up being is value buyers and then very long-term holders. Now, I know that sounds slightly illogical, but we think that that works for us and, and we observe that that's worked over time. It means, yes, you do try and buy at reasonable valuations, but then you're not too hasty to sell. I mean, after all, if you look at some of the wonderful businesses around the world, some of which we've got in our portfolio, there have been many, many occasions when you could have argued they're looking a bit expensive. 
and you would have missed out on the subsequent decades, which they've continued to compound. So we're not indifferent to valuation, and we will take action if valuations become way too expensive. But we are prepared to hold businesses for long periods of time, even when they're looking quite expensive. At the portfolio level, as I mentioned, we're generating about a 5.8% free cash flow yield at the moment. And that compares to about a 4.9% free cash flow yield on the market. So our portfolio is less expensive than the market. And that's funding about a 3% dividend yield. And it's made up of businesses that are compounding capital at a much better rate than the market. We have much higher returns on capital, better operating margins, generally much more attractive operating metrics. And therefore, we think that today, despite what I say about the unusual combination of having a somewhat difficult outlook combined with fairly fully valued markets, we think our portfolio looks reasonable value, particularly because of the persistency and durability of the growth embedded within it. What actually have you been doing over the last, uh, shall we say, it's been a difficult period, you say, but since, shall we take the last 18 months, what actually have you been doing in portfolio terms? We haven't done a great deal. The newest holding in the portfolio is Texas Instruments. This is a lovely business. It has been around for a while, yes. It's proven performer. A wonderfully managed business. It has very attractive gross margins, operating margins. It has a very clear framework for value creation. If you read the annual report, they lay out how they are going to grow free cash flow per share and describe how they're going to do it. It's got long-standing, highly respected management. It's embedded in many other people's products. So once you've built a Texas instrument chip into your whatever it might be, then you don't tend to change it for the duration of that product. And so they've got great visibility. It does have a degree of cyclicality attached to it. It doesn't have very much leverage. And we were able to buy it at what we thought was a very attractive valuation at about a 5.5% free cash flow yield through the cycle in October of last year. And we funded that from the sale of Western Union, which is a business that was very inexpensive, but Texas is just a much, much better business. We've also added to a number of holdings in recent months. So we're very excited about Nintendo at the moment. We think Nintendo is a very interesting business, not just because of the recent film. You may have seen that the Super Mario Brothers movie has been one of the most successful animated films of all time. I've had to go and see it twice with my little boy, I have to say. But despite that, it does appear that it's been very successful. But what it demonstrates is that there's a great demand for Nintendo intellectual property. We think they'll be launching their new Switch, which is the new console, sometime in the next year or so. And what we think is interesting, that you you have an individual account with Nintendo now. It's not just a piece of plastic you take off the shelf and play and then put back on the shelf. Because you download software and you upgrade the operating system via Wi-Fi, you have an individual account. Therefore, they have an installed base, which we think will transfer to the new console in a much more predictable way has been the case in the past. And it's not priced for that. So that's a business we like very much and have been adding to. One of the others that we bought not too distant future was uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. This is a lovely business. It owns five or so of the biggest futures contracts in the world. There's a structural increase in the need to hedge interest rate risk inflation risk, commodity volatility, and so on. We had them in our offices this week, actually. And it's just a very well-managed, very sensible business in a lovely market position. And the reality is, in, in some respects, it ought to be a regulated utility because it's effectively a monopoly in what it does. But the US being the US, it's a fabulously profitable business. And they have a fairly innovative shareholder returns program whereby they pay a dividend, but then they also pay you all the cash that they don't need that year in a special dividend at the end of the year. And therefore, as a global income asset, particularly given what I've said about the structural increase in both the uses of futures and options and the untethered interest rate and inflation expectations that we have, we just think it's a very nicely positioned business. And that's been funded from various areas where we felt that companies have become somewhat fully valued. Hershey is one, Microsoft is one, and so on. So we have done one or two things. 
We have about 7 to 9% turnover per annum consistently over the last seven years since I've been at Troy. It's only two or three new ideas a year. So that covers the last 12, 18 months. That's uh, always reassuring in a way if you're doing what you're doing to hear that you haven't been doing too much. That's always the first question you have to put to uh, likes of yourself or a Terry Smith or uh, anybody else in that game. So let's finish up by talking about the trust again. One of the reasons of having an investment trust is that you can do different things than you can do in your open-ended fund. And you can use gearing, obviously, is one of the things you can do. You also have a discount control policy, which is very much a Troy hallmark. You're trying to limit the volatility around the discount and trade around power all the time, which you've successfully managed to do so far. Just had to buy back a few shares since you took over. What's the policy around gearing? And uh, what would you say is what differentiates the trust from uh, an open-ended equivalent? At the portfolio level, the asset level, if you like, we manage them bang in line with each other. We are seeking for them to be effectively the same portfolio, but in different structures. And the way it tends to work is that if investors want to allocate a meaningful amount of money to the strategy, and we have seen that recently, then they'll tend to allocate to the open industry structure. But if investors want to add increments of slightly smaller amounts of capital, particularly individuals, then they tend to buy the closed-ended structure um, because of the benefits that it has. So, yes, we are able to use gearing. The trust is about 5.9% geared currently on a net basis. And we do think it's an interesting string to one's bow, if you like. We could increase the gearing to up to 9-10%, obviously in consultation with the board, but we wouldn't go any further than that. But we don't think it's consistent to increase the gearing today, given what I told you about the overall value of assets. We would like to be increasing the gearing at a point where we believe tactically assets are better value. So they're the main changes. And of course, we have board oversight. As regards the DCM or discount control mechanism, you're quite right. It is a hallmark of Troy. You know, the investment trusts are extremely important to us at Troy. We've had great success with the personal assets trust, the Troy Income and Growth Trust, and now, of course, STS Global Income and Growth. And the DCM gives us a number of advantages, we think. Currently, the trust, as you mentioned, is about a little over 200 million pounds. I mean, clearly, that's a lot of money, but it's actually relatively small relative to many other trusts. What's interesting about a discount control mechanism is it gives investors confidence that they're able to buy and importantly to sell close to NAV. It's somewhat counterintuitive. If you know you're going to be able to sell, then you should be happier to buy. And although there are those that lament somewhat perhaps the inability to be able to buy at a discount, it also means that you don't suffer a discount when you come to sell. It gives it a much higher level of liquidity than a, an equivalent sized trust, which we think it makes it attractive for investors, means they know they can sell if they need to. And it, of course, reduces volatility as well. And then the final point is by issuing shares at a premium and buying about a discount over time, as we've seen with our two trusts, you can grow trusts. And that's certainly our ambition for this trust. So your ambition is to grow the trust, to become a bigger beast, if you like, in the sector. My final question really is about the impact of sterling and other currencies on, on the portfolio. Last year, you benefited from the fact that sterling was quite weak, and that helped to boost your revenues and so on, helped to get your dividend yield up, uh, as it happens. Uh, you're obviously not going to reduce that, I'm sure. But what is overall the impact of uh, currency movements if you are a sterling-based investor in the trust? Well, the first point to make is that we did take the dividend down a little bit when we took the trust on or when the trust was entrusted to Troy to make it what we felt was a was a sustainable level and, and to be able to grow that consistently through time. And you're quite right that sterling does have an effect. So quite obviously, when sterling is weak, it boosts income coming from overseas. And the opposite is also true. So last year, we had a bit of a windfall because of the weakness in sterling. And we were able, because it's a trust, to put some of that in the revenue reserve. And so we've been consciously taking the income down to a level we think is sustainable, and also rebuilding the revenue reserve. 
to give us greater confidence that we'll be able to consistently grow the income in the future. And so, so we have done that. Uh, you're quite right. Also, this year, sterling has rallied somewhat. That means that we're going to be there or thereabouts on an underlying basis this year and last year. But of course, because we've rebuilt the revenue reserve, what better time to, to use some of it? So putting all of that together, the consistency and persistency and predictability of the cash flows, the level of the dividend at a sustainable level, the building of the revenue reserve, we think that we can grow the dividend, the 3% dividend at 5-ish percent very consistently from here. And that's our ambition. Very good indeed. So that was James Harris, uh, manager of the STS Global Income and Growth Trust, managed by Troy Asset Management. This has been a Master Investor podcast, one of a series hosted by the professional investor and author Jonathan Davis. For more news, insights and interviews with leading market experts, please visit the Master Investor website, masterinvestor.co.uk. 